All right, so we are back to the eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. And you may recall that two weeks ago I started on element eight. So that's uh, of the eight elements, we're now starting element eight. However, you might recall that we never finished element seven. I decided in light of the new school year to uh, not finish element seven for the time being, fill it, finish it a little later after people have known us for a while. Because, of course, as you get into the Holy Spirit and deliverance from demons and healing and so forth, you're getting into controversial subjects for a lot of modern Western people who uh, have been brought up not to believe that there is a supernatural element of walking with God. Those probably wouldn't be controversial subjects in most nations today. Uh, in any case, uh, so looking at your notes, uh, Roman numeral one gives you the eight elements. Uh, Roman numeral 2 gives you uh, the five steps of entering the kingdom that was element 7. Roman numeral 3 tells you that in two, two weeks ago we started on element 8, maturing in Jesus Christ by growing in grace, which really needs to be part of the gospel, by the way. We kind of think of the gospel as taking people to a place where they pray, pray a sinner's prayer, invite Christ into their life, and then maybe we give them some literature <laughs> and encourage them to go to a church. But that's not biblical at all, because Jesus didn't say, go into all the world and make sinner's prayers or make decisions for Christ. He said to make disciples. And so at best, receiving Christ is an initial step in discipleship. And that would be like uh, if you know we have a lot of uh, infants and toddlers in our church, and I've never yet known one of the parents who said, well... I'm not all that concerned whether we go ahead and bring the baby home from the hospital or just leave them there. <laughs> you know, that would be crazy, right? Uh, and maybe criminal. <laughs> so, uh, so definitely criminal. So, and, you know, to go about doing evangelism in such a way as you think the goal is to get people to pray sinners' prayers is criminal. It is so unscriptural that it should be considered heresy. We are to invite people into a way of life that they become a disciple of Jesus Christ that of necessity means they become a disciple of the Scriptures, uh, commune with the, the Holy Spirit, and be empowered progressively by the Holy Spirit, and live that out in a community of Christian believers that has plurality of elders and biblical teaching and a way of life and Mutual service and loving God together. So um, it's important that we see that, you know, maturing in Jesus Christ by growing in grace is just part of the gospel. Uh, the, the essence of the new covenant, and according to the great, you know, there's lots of great scriptures in the Old Testament promising the new covenant. Perhaps the greatest and it's not just my opinion, it happens to be the opinion of the writer of Hebrews because he quotes it in, uh, several times in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, is Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And one of the great lines of that is, they will all know me from the least to the greatest. So the promise of the gospel is that it's an introduction into a relationship that progresses and grows in grace and grows in the grace that comes about by knowing experientially the Lord Jesus Christ. So the more you know him, the more you become like him. 
The more you worship him, the more you become conformed to his image. Whether you have idols of nice cars or uh, power or vocational advancement, whatever your idols that you worship is what you'll become like them. If you notice, like, Logan has various Cleveland Indians and Michigan Wolverines gear. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. Because you become like him. You know, <laughs> he looks like he's a Cleveland Indian. At least he's got the garb. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, you become like whatever you follow, really. So uh, let's so that let's get into this growing in grace. Uh, Roman numeral four. Uh, two weeks ago, when we started this, I gave some resources uh, that you can. Uh, you know, if you want to study this subject of grace, we think it's an important enough subject that we call this Grace Christian Fellowship. So that would tell you that we think it's an important subject. Um, there are two podcast series by John and one by me on grace. I listed a couple modern books on grace. And then, of course, you can go back and do the ancient uh, writings. If, uh, of course, Luther's commentary on Galatians was probably one of the five most important books of the Reformation or so. All right, so then we defined grace uh, because we're kind of in this first section. You know, we, this is grace. This is element 8A1 and A2, grace in perspective. We talked about how almost all Christian traditions, especially all Western Christian traditions today, would define grace as God's divine unmerited favor. And if you ask the average Christian today, what does grace mean? Undeserved favor or unmerited favor. Being reconciled to God and not deserving him. Nor, did, nor were we seeking God. He came seeking us. Isn't that great? I mean, I love that Jesus said that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. Because if you read, really read what the Bible says about our sin nature, we were seeking very aggressively not to be found. <laughs> so we were all playing hide and seek with God and trying not to find him and trying not to let him find us. I love, I just watched the movie Amazing Grace again Friday night between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m., which I watched a couple weeks ago, same hours. <laughs> and, uh, and I love the line where he's talking to his butler and, he's, and the butler goes, you found God, sir? And he goes, I think he found me, you know, because he's starting to have better theology already. You know, yeah, he found you. You didn't come looking for him. So uh, grace is more than divine favor. Grace is divine empowerment. And if you uh, look at the Grace Christian Fellowship uh, series called Grace Upon Grace, thank you, from 2013 or the more recent uh, that we've been doing Thursday nights at Cedarville, uh, and you can get those notes by emailing Stephen. Um, we give about eight different biblical definitions of grace. Now, let's uh, flip over the page where we left off last week is talking about how grace is relational and dynamic. So grace can be stagnant or it can be dynamic and grow. You can grow in grace or you can fail to grow in grace. Every day. You can resist the grace of God, or the grace of God can cause you to seek the grace of God. He's the author and the initiator, initiator in such a way that he actually calls us to seek the grace, and we respond and seek grace. 
So grace is realized in Jesus Christ, and the word realized is an experiential word. That's a very controversial issue in, this, in the church today. People who are from a reform perspective are normally fairly anti-experience. Like, don't make it about spiritual experiences and emotions and, and activity and so forth. It's all about theological th- th- doctrines and having it abstractly correct. Those who uh, tend to be from the charismatic or Pentecostal persuasions tend to base everything in experience with very little theological underpinnings to the point that most charismatics and Pentecostals are kind of theologically absurd, to be honest. And the Bible never makes such a dichotomy. The Bible actually uses one in tension with the other to find reality. That's why Paul's epistles are structured the way they are. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is the theological underpinnings of the gospel. And Ephesians 4, 5, 6 is how we should live that out. Romans 1 through 11 are the theological, you know, Paul presents the gospel in three great treatises, Romans 1 through 4, 5 through uh, 8, and then 9, 10, and 11. And then in chapter 12, he tells us, I urge you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and sacrifice. By everything I've said in 11 chapters, start living this way. And he deals with all kinds of attitudes, motivations, behaviors that are to be lived out. And if they don't make sense apart from Christian community, none of the epistles make sense apart from Christian community. If you were to go to the average see you on Sunday kind of church, uh, there's no way you could live the Christian life because they're about how to relate to each other every day in the church. So, uh, all relationships are something you can grow in. Um, if you, uh, we, we covered this in the Cedarville Bible study as well this past Thursday. We got dusted off an old outline from Search the Scripture series, ch- uh, chapter 2a, called, uh, uh, I think it's called The Virtue of Knowledge, and it's uh, an examination of about 30 Greek words that have to do with knowledge, but for the most part, they break down into two categories scriptural, intellectual, cognitive knowledge, and spiritual, heartfelt, uh, active, relational knowledge. And the Bible is very clear that we need both. That's why Paul says something that sounds ludicrous in English, but makes perfectly sense if you take the two different words that are translated know or knowledge in English, gnosko and in Gnosis, he says, I pray that you would know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. Now, if I were to say to John Gray, John, I want you to know something that's beyond your knowing. He'd be like, what? You know, I, I thought you gave up drugs 43 years ago. What's, you know, like, what, what are you talking about? Like, I want you to know something you can't know. And what Paul is saying is, I want you to know experientially something you could never totally comprehend or explain exhaustively or, in, or, or fully. I want you to experience the love of Christ that you could not never uh, fully articulate. Nor, you ever have times when you kind of understand something, or at least you think you do, but you can't quite explain it to someone? He's actually saying, I want you to know the love of Christ that goes beyond what you think you can know in your head, even if you, you know, is, is beyond what you can explain. That's important, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and to be filled up 
to all the fullness of God. That's an experiential word. He doesn't want you to be full of yourself, <laughs> which we've all struggled with at times. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> some of us more than others. But, uh, no. but uh, he wants you to be filled to the fullness of God. Now, moving on to point B, we, this is kind of where we left off. Grace can be thwarted, it can be di- di- replaced, diverted, or it can die. Now, um, I want you to understand, I'm not going to get into too much, but I want you, if you've never read anything on the doctrine called the perseverance of the saints that's covered in the theology class, um, and you should read some about it, um, you can see uh, John Weiss or Andy Gearhart or somebody for introductory books on the subject. It is quite different than the modern evangelical understanding of eternal security. Because modern evangelicalism has kind of done a paradigm shift where we start by thinking from the point of view of man instead of thinking from the point of view of God. So that twists every doctrine. So the perseverance of the saints, when you understand that God foreknows, predestines, and has eternally decreed all things, makes total sense. Those who are God's chosen, those who are God's elect, those who God grants repentance to, Acts 11, 18, Romans 2, 4, tells us the kindness of God grants repentance. Those who, you know, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Those who he, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Those who he initiates the grace of God for, he will keep calling them. He's not a fickle God. He's an eternal covenant God. And even when we're lackadaisical, lukewarm, diverted, or whatever, he brings us again unto repentance and keeps drawing us. That's not, but to, to have some kind of doctrine that therefore I can be lackadaisical in my faith or presume on the grace of God is utter man-centered sinful thinking. And uh, some people call the doctrine of eternal security external impurity Because it gets twisted in modern times to say, I prayed a sinner's prayer, and deep down in my heart I have no desire to follow God. I'm not going to make him Lord. I'm going to screw around with my Christian life. I'm going to do what I want to do financially, vocationally, maritally, uh, you know, every other way. I am not going to submit my life to to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I am not going to submit my life to the Scriptures. I am not going to submit to the eldership of a church. I am going to do my thing because I prayed a sinner's prayer so I'm eternally secure. What you're basically saying is, is I have the rebellion of hell in my heart, yet somehow I want to go to heaven. The truth is, you won't go to heaven with that attitude because you don't even like heaven. You've already decided you don't want it because what heaven is about, Jesus said, this is eternal life that you might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. John 17, 3, at the beginning of his high priestly prayer. Eternal life is a quality of life we begin to enter now, and heaven is a byproduct. And ever since we perverted the gospel in the late 1800s to be salvation from hell and into heaven, we've had that kind of nutty, eternal security, man-centered thinking but God, the, the gospel is God wants to deliver you from the principles of hell. That is your own sin and your own self-determination, the desire to be God yourself and do your own thing. 
And unless you're saved from that, you're not saved. Unless there's a change of who you're trying to please deep in your heart. The unregenerate person is trying to please themselves in a thousand deceived ways. And a redeemed person is trying to please God in an ever, in, in ever enlightened ways. Increasingly understanding the will of God and the heart of God and the ways of God. And unless you have something deep inside yourself that wants to please God, you're not yet converted to Christ. No matter how many sinners' prayers you've prayed and how many times you've gone forward at an altar call, God gives you that desire to please him at conversion. I often tell the story when I was 17 years old and I was just, just quit drugs and started reading the Word a lot and so forth, and I was reading my Bible and going to bed one night, and I was wrestling with my own sin, and, and so I had been reading and reading and reading, and, and so I turned off the light and, and uh, you know, like scooted down under the covers in the darkness of my bedroom, and I said, Lord, I just want to do what pleases you. And uh, I actually was so surprised that that came out of my heart that I sat back up and turned on the light and said, what? Like, that came out of me? Like, I said that? I'm like, that was never on my agenda before. (laughs) I never put it in my day timer, seek God, please God, love God, do what God wants. That was never, like, something I was pursuing previously to that. That was God converting me despite me. Right? That's what happens at conversion. You just get this desire to know God, to please God, and to quit doing it your way. You begin to understand that the most demonic evil, you know, people are always against uh, country music. Aesthetically, I am too, but, uh, <laughs> or whatever, rap or, or rock and roll or whatever. Probably the most demonic song of all time is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. And I doubt that could be considered hard rock or anything uh, as far as the genre. I did it my way is the creed of fallen man. All right, so grace can be thwarted. It can be replaced. It can be diverted. It can die. But God, by his grace, constantly calls us back to grace. Now, Hebrews 12, 15 and 16 says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Learn how to read the reverse negative. That means that you can, can come short of the, reverse, the, the grace of God. If I say, don't forget to take your lunch, that means you could forget to take your lunch. If I, you know, parents are always telling their kids stuff like that. <laughs> you know, don't forget to take your lunch. Like, they're going to forget to eat. And <laughs> they didn't want their lunch because they didn't want tuna again. But, uh, <laughs> and they, they had enough money to buy a better lunch. But... Uh, it wasn't accidental, they forgot. No. See to it that you don't come short of the grace of God means it's possible to come short of the grace of God. That there no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and many be made defiled. In other words, you're commanded by God if, to not let the sun go down on your anger, to keep your relationships current, to not have any roots of bitterness, and to, to have great fellowship with everyone in the church. And you're called not to come short of that. 
Do you know most people quit the churches and join the other churches because of relational conflicts that they're not willing to, they don't want to do what God wants them to do. So, um, Galatians 5, 4 says, You've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now, I'm hoping to get to grace plus theologies yet today. And um, that's what the whole book of Galatians is about. And if you noticed on our resources, John just did a series earlier this year on the book of Galatians, which he points out very clearly, Galatians 1.10, if I'm still striving to please men, I could not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. The whole root of the performance-based approach of the Galatians was being men-pleasers rather than God-pleasers. John pointed that out in the very first message of the series. You've been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by law. You've fallen from grace. Now, hopefully that brings Romans 10, 1 through 4 automatically to your mind, where Paul says that, he, uh, ver- that he, his great heart's desire are for his Jewish people that have rejected Christ and been cut off from God because uh, they have a zeal with, for God, but their zeal for God is not according to knowledge. For not sub- knowing about God's righteousness, he then goes on to say, they did not subject themselves, King James language or New King James, submit themselves, New American Standard language, they didn't submit themselves to God's righteousness, but pursued it as if it was by self-initiative or by performance, by works. And that's the essence of grace plus theologies. And that's the essence of severing yourself from grace. And most brands of Christianity in our day and age have some kind of grace somewhere in the mixed, but bottom line, they're performance-based. You got to do this to match, you know, like to fit in here. You got to do this, this, and that, and the other thing. And the difficult thing about it is true grace does produce obedience. Paul talks about how he was given grace in apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. But it's an obedience that's initiated by God and comes out of the power of his resurrection and the power of loving intimacy with God for his glory and by his strength. You'll know that it's God's performance in it if there's any room for your glory in it like i'm a pretty good christian if you don't think you're a miserable terrible lousy christian you probably don't get it yet (laughs) you know i'm glad to pass like i tell pastors all the time like you go to these pastors meetings and they're all kind of posturing how big their church is and uh, and how you know and so forth and i always say they always say, well, how many people are you running? I said, I don't know. Most of them are walking. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know like, very few running. <laughs> just, just Jonathan Burks. But uh, the, rest of us, the rest of them are avoiding running. <laughs> you, know, and, uh, you know, we're running about 20, I always say. You know, maybe 15. And, uh, and, uh, and besides that, we're the worst Christians ever. <laughs> Because we got the worst pastor ever. <laughs> so, well, that changes the conversation. All right. 
So, um, you know, Paul goes on to say, after he says they did not submit themselves to Christ's righteousness, pursued it as if it was by their own initiative or their own works, he then says Christ is the telos of the law for everyone who believes, which means the fulfillment or the end or the purpose. The idea of teleology is a branch of a philosophy and a branch of theology, whereby you ask yourself, is there a discernible outcome in the way this thing is designed? And what Paul is saying is Christ is the, is the, is the one and only desirable outcome He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. All things are created by him and through him and for him. And uh, to him be the glory forever. And therefore, there's no room for our self-initiative works, nor for human pride. That's why grace is so controversial. If you really start getting down to grace, it's a scandal. I know some of your past. <laughs> it's scandalous that you're the great saints of God. <laughs> and then I'm the, you know, like, you don't even want to know. Uh, <laughs> you know, like most of us have to leave out certain parts of our testimony so that the rating stays like PG-13 or better. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about unwrapping the free gift. This is always kind of a, a, a thing. Next week we're going to talk about um, attitudes and actions for appropriating greater grace. Grace is something that you have is free gift, but it's kind of like a gift that you get that's got that's all wrapped up nice with bows and stuff. Don't you hate the fact that the gift comes and you gotta like. Then you got to discern, like, is the person the kind of person that would care if we just ripped the wrapping paper off? <laughs> or, you know, I had a dear old grandma who, who would, like, if you didn't just rip it off, she'd go, come on, get it, wrap it off. You're, you're unwrapping like a girl. Of course, the, she was, that wasn't politically correct in our days, but she, she was from another generation. Like, you, she didn't want you to take, take it apart nicely at the tape seams or whatever. You know, um, Paul says this in Philippians 2, 12, and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What if the verse stopped there? That would be a performance-based works verse, wouldn't it? But never stop in the middle of Greek sentences, <laughs> you know, or you miss the point of the sentence, right? You know, like you can't read a part of a sentence and get, you know, the whole meaning. So um, he goes on to say, for it's God that's at work in you, both to work and the will for his good pleasure. And grace is something you receive, but just even at Christmas time, like in our family at Christmas, we have all the gifts, and then someone is usually the person who passes them out. You still got to reach your hands out, receive the gift, and so forth. And I always say there's a, you know, we, we always invite somebody who do, isn't got a place to have Christmas, and we always have, you know, a few people who aren't from our family at Christmas. Maybe they live too far away to go home or whatever. Some of you have been to a few of our Christmases and so forth. And we always don't tell the person that they're going to get gifts when they come. And you, they could, like, what's the catch? Well, the catch is 
that after Grace Christian Fellowship's Christmas Eve service and John's good Christmas Eve message, next you have to go to this awful place and sit around this table and eat like turkey, duck, pork roast, and ham, and dressing, and mashed potatoes, and gravy, and I don't know why they make vegetables, but there's a few vegetables. <laughs> for, I don't know who that's for. But, uh, you know, and finally there's like eight kinds of pie to choose from. You know, like, and uh, it's, there's a catch. You gotta, you gotta, and, and you gotta sit around the table and talk to one another and enjoy the fellowship. Have a glass of, you know, wine or whatever. So, uh, Then you have to unwrap the gifts. And God's grace is like that. Um, we're all born by grace, but grace makes demands on us. When you're born again, you're born into the family of God. And no, every kid that's born into a family has a free place to live, food, clothing, school, right? But then there's, eventually, there's chores. And if you're doing right by your kids, there's chores at a very early age. We had all of our kids doing their own laundry by third grade. Why? Because mom's too busy to do your laundry. <laughs> there's responsibilities, and everyone knew how to do dishes by kindergarten. That was what's required in the family I grew up in. You dried in kindergarten, by first grade you could wash. And, um, you, you know, by second or third grade you're mowing the lawn. And, you know, there's grace has responsibilities and demands. Membership has its privileges. You know, like uh, the advertising industry is always trying to, you know, narcissistically tell you it's all about your privileges. So if you have a MasterCard or whatever, what's this? Whose membership has its privileges? American Express? Just try not paying the bill. <laughs> and you'll find out that membership has its responsibilities. <laughs> right? There's no easy payments. There's no free lunch. Grace makes demands. It's just where is the initiative? Where does the power come from? What's the purpose? And who gets the glory? And it all comes from him through him and to him. To God be the glory both in Christ and in the church forever. Amen. All right, so let's talk about grace plus theologies. Uh, there's a bunch of scriptures listed with each of those points that I took, did not take time to go into. Read Matthew 22, uh, 1 through 14. Turn there for one second. Now, hopefully by now, uh, you understand the, per, you know, the, the structure of Matthew. We've talked a lot about it in this church over the last three or four, four years. Um, is Amber Johnson here? When Amber Johnson first came, we had a number of talks about how she wanted to get more out of the Old Testament. So I did a bunch of teachings just for her uh, that year, and they're on the podcast, all about mountains and Matthew and stuff like that. So Matthew is God's covenant lawsuit against Israel. 
And it's not just for rejecting Christ, it's because the, the Israelites rejected God's purpose for themselves from the time of Moses on. It starts in Exodus 19, when Moses, just before he gives them the Ten Commandments, says to them, all that the Lord says to you, you must do. And they answer in Exodus 19.8, the saddest verse in the entire Bible, a pivotal point in Scripture. They say, all that God has commanded, we will do. Meaning, we'll do it by our initiative and by our performance. And Israel continues to pursue it by their initiative and by their performance and fall totally short all the way through what we already discussed in Romans 10. They're still trying to pursue it by works and by performance. And frankly, many Christian groups through church history have tried to do that. And that will cut you off from the grace of God. You have to start by admitting confessing your, the depth of your sin and your depravity, and there's nothing in you that seeks God. And there's nothing, you know, we're, you know, we're the, more the publican, like, I thank you that I'm not like other men, <laughs> you know. That we, we need to be, or that's the Pharisee, and the publican is like, Lord, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. God has to convert us to that, every one of us. So... Uh, Matthew 22 is all about how God sent one servant after another servant after another servant, and they killed one and stoned another, and finally they said, this is the son, we'll kill him. And he says, as a result, therefore the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he goes on to predict the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 22. Uh, 3, 37 through 39, and Matthew 24, and Matthew 25. Okay, so um, read that Matthew 22 verse. It's about coming to Christmas dinner. The point is, they, they were invited to Christmas dinner, but they, they didn't want to come. They didn't want to come on the basis of the invite. You know, when you come to Christmas dinner, everything's done for you. Unless you're, unfortunately, the person who cooks it or whatever. But, you know, like you come as a guest to Christmas dinner, which is what we're doing. We're invited into the kingdom as the guest of the king. Everything's done for us. All right, so let's look at these five approaches. One is works plus works plus works plus works. In other words, works alone, works plus nothing, produces grace or produces favor. Acceptance. Grace also means favor or acceptance. In other words, the way to acceptance with God is to be a good little girl or a good little boy and do all sorts of right little things. Don't we raise our kids up in the church that way these days? Don't play with those nasty things. Don't even talk to the nasty people. <laughs> you know, and so forth, right? So, Paul's dealing with that in Romans 10, 1 through 4, because that's the entire history of Israel from Exodus 19, verse 8 forward through the rest of the Bible. And God is ticked off about it, and he's done with it, and he brings armies to destroy Jerusalem and tear down the temple. 
And Jesus predicts that that will happen within a generation of his going to be with the Father. He says, this generation will not pass away till everything I'm saying has been fulfilled. A generation in the Bible is 40 years. That happened between 67 and a half A.D. and 70 A.D. The temple was torn down in 70 A.D. by Titus, exactly one generation after the resurrection. All of that is part of Christ's first coming. Second approach is that works plus grace leads to favor. You know, that's kind of like you got to do all the performance, but somewhere in the mix we know Christ died for our sins and that has something to do with it. Somewhere, maybe. And we pray for God's help, but we just want just enough help, you know, like come in the, into my life, sit in the back seat, and when I get in a lot of trouble, I'll cry out to you. And, but I'm still running the thing. And that's uh, grace plus a works mix. Then the second is grace plus works. In other words, the first one is works plus grace. Second, the third one is grace plus works. And that's the idea that we start by grace. We pray the sinner's prayer, all humble, just as I am without one plea, but that, that your blood was shed for me. Oh, God, I'm a sinner. Come into my life and so forth. And then he cleans us up a little bit, and we'll take it from there. You know, you can, you can almost tell if you got that posture if, uh, if you're not, make, not seeking the, the tools of grace. If you're not regularly, if you think you can get by a few days without reading the word, you probably have grace plus works in your heart. You probably got, you got this covered. If you think you can skip the Lord's day, because, you know, there's a soccer game or nice football, the Bengals are playing, so I'm, <laughs> whatever, you know, like people have all these reasons they skip the Lord's day in our culture. Uh, because I got this covered. Grace plus works is the Galatian crisis that John taught us about. Um, works, so point, under point C there, sub point one, works plus grace and grace plus works often grows out, to, out of a reaction to uh, the, uh, turning the grace of God into licentiousness, which we're going to talk about. And so, um, uh, that, you know, but it's still not the right approach. Uh, secondly, people react against the scandal of grace, which is the offense of the cross. Um, because the, the offense of the cross slaps A and B in the face. It says that you cannot be acceptable to God in any way, shape, or form at all. You know, one of the foundations of the Christian life listed in Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, it, it, Hebrews 5, 14, Hebrews 6, 1 is actually a very unfortunate place to put a chapter. Remember the chapters read in the 8th century, so always read a little before and after because it comes right in the middle of Paul's thought in verse, or, or if whoever wrote Hebrews, John thinks Paul wrote it. Uh, I'll find, I, I decided I'll find out in heaven. But uh, <laughs> in any case, whoever writes Hebrews 5, 14 says, that by, uh, by this time you ought to be mature, but you have need of someone to teach you the elementary doctrines, and solid food is for the mature who through practice have their senses trained to good and evil. And he tells them to go beyond the elemental principles, but then he relists what the elemental principles are. The first one, repentance from dead works. The second one, 
uh, faith toward God, and the third one, instructions about baptisms. But let's focus on repentance from dead works. What is that? Repentance from dead works is the whole idea that I can have any initiative and righteousness in and of myself. It's giving for the wrong motives. It's serving for the wrong motives. It's doing all the right religious things for, for out of self-initiative for self-glory. That's dead works. That's when you're like the uh, Pharisee who said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And you list your pedigree of good works. Repentance from dead works is actually one of the foundations of the Christian life. The next approach, number D there, I probably should have numbered them one through five because five approaches. The fourth approach is grace turned into licentiousness or grace perverted. That is very common in our day. And it's the, uh, Jude talks about it. He talks about those who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Peter talks about it in 2 Peter that there will become destructive heresies who deny the master who bought them. That's basically like I don't have to actually do the godly things. I'll get around to tithing or eventually. I'll get around to reading the word eventually. I'll get around to doing what the elders asked me to do eventually. But, you know, I, because I'm under grace, I can just do what I please. You could also call that the grace of God into lawlessness, as the scripture does. That's the essence of antinomianism and and probably 90-some percent of Protestant Christianity in our culture is antinomian. The final approach, the biblical approach, is grace upon grace. Grace plus grace. I start by grace, I grow by grace, I continue by grace, and it's all for His glory. I start, grow, continue, and finish by grace. All right, so think, get those categories memorized and think in your own life which you're really living. Now, here's how you can detect grace plus performance theologies. In other words, if you're not grace upon grace, you should be able to find that in yourself. And Hebrews 5.14 tells us that solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. What the scripture is clearly saying is that performance-based approaches are wicked. They're evil. They're, they're actually more wicked than adultery, pornography, being a thief, stealing cars, and being a murderer. Paul lists all of his things that he could. In Philippians 3, Paul lists all the ways he could have asserted his status before God, that he was... A, an Israelite of Israelites from the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees, and so forth. And he says, I have counted all of this as skubalon, which is the Greek street word for feces. It's the one you say when you're not in polite company at church. That's why the King James translates it dung, because back in 1611, that was the word that we would start with S-H-I-T today. <laughs> that, you know, that's what, the King, that's what the King James P-1611 
people would have, you know, like if you were a really bad kid in King James, you would say, oh, dung, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm tired of this dung, <laughs> you know. Now today that's a relatively polite, don't give me any more of that dung, <laughs> I don't want to hear it, <laughs> you know. And Paul is saying all performance braces approach are something squishy, brown, smelly, and nasty. That when you step in it, you got to leave the shoes out in the garage. <laughs> you know, like you can't even bring them in the house because they're disgusting. It's horse manure. We have some people who are experts on horse manure if you want to consult them afterwards. <laughs> so... Uh, they could probably tell you a few things about how wonderful horse manure is uh, and how fun it is to shovel out of the stalls and so forth. What a, I mean, that's like the favorite pastime. Uh, <laughs> that's what Paul is saying that self-righteousness is, making any pretenses that I'm a good little Christian. It's horse manure. Praise the Lord. All right. Uh, Here's some ways to detect it. Whenever you have performance base, you'll, ha you'll have a lot of uh, struggles with condemnation and, and shame. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't love you. That means you need to take it to God, get some ministry from some older Christians, memorize some verses, get some inner healing, deliverance, whatever it takes. But, but you will have a struggle with condemnation, and there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus if you're, if you're still struggling with being performance-based. And at the same time, you will be self-righteous. You'll think, I'm a pretty good Christian. God's so lucky to have me. Boy, good thing for Grace Christian Fellowship that I go there. <laughs> you'll, have, you'll have both condemnation and self-righteousness in the same person. And again, I don't have time to open up all the scriptures that are listed there. Look them up for yourself. You'll, if you went back through these outlines and looked up the scriptures, you would get five times as much out of these messages, by the way, because you wouldn't forget them so quick. If people reuse the outlines at least once, you would literally get five times as much benefit. Secondly, you'll find yourself being harsh in judgment. You know, this was a work of God's grace that Catherine and I probably shouldn't admit in front of people. But we, were, we grew up in ritzy families in the suburbs where everyone was expected to go to college and everyone had advanced degrees. And, and uh, you know, like in my hometown, it took over 30 years for McDonald's to, uh, to talk to city council and let him build a McDonald's because it was beneath the city's dignity to have something like McDonald's in the city. Seriously. And, uh, and then it had to be like, it's not like any McDonald's you'd ever seen. It's the plushest McDonald's you'd ever see. You know, they have waiters. That they've, no, no, they don't. <laughs> but, uh, but it's a pretty plush McDonald's. Because, and so, you know, like when God first started, you know, having me coach inner city baseball teams and work with inner city kids and study the culture of poverty and stuff, there was always this kind of like thing where, you know, like, oh man, look at that. You know, like, well, you're helping some alcoholic guy or whatever, they don't bathe or whatever, and you always have this kind of little thing that you think you're better than someone you're helping. If you ever have that in your spirit and heart, you're not walking, you don't get grace yet. If you ever kind of think, I, well, you know, I'm, I, if, you're, if you're not able to have someone, you know, look at you in the jail, 
you know, I can remember the first guy I was ministering to in the jail telling me how he had this whole system where he got arrested every fall for drunk and disorderly so he could spend the winter in the jail and then in the spring, and he'd always get a 90-day sentence or whatever, so he'd get out in the spring and he always used that time to line up his food stamps and all his other leech-off society ways of living during the time he was in jail. And I'm like, oh, Lord. <laughs> you know, I, and, uh, and I thought, man, I'm a lot better than this guy because I wouldn't do that. When I get drunk, I don't get arrested. <laughs> and I certainly don't time it. <laughs> no. So, harsh in judgment. In other words, I, I can. there's a lot of people that I've led to Christ that literally we've had to go over every week for like a year. Why do you take the speck out of your brother's life when you have a log in your own eye? They're like... You can, you can kind of tell that you're not walking by grace when you kind of think other people's problems are logs and yours is a speck and you don't get that, that yours is the log. Does everyone get that? That'll help you see performance in your own heart when you actually have that kind of harsh in judgment. So go minister to someone who's hard to love and you'll find out how much grace you have. Third thing is expectations and appreciations. I have a saying, decrease your expectations and increase your appreciation. As God, as you grow in the Lord, what will happen is, as you begin to, if you develop study habits, discipline, uh, get discipled, be in Christian community and so forth, God will put your life together in ways that other people's lives are not together. Lots of ways you'll have 10 times more character than most other people. But do, who gets the credit for it and how you handle that? Can you handle that with grace? Can you really in your heart believe there but by the grace of God go I? Can you really roll up your sleeves and work with somebody that's not as far along? Fourthly and lastly, you'll find you'll be a people pleaser. Jesus said, woe are you if all men speak well of you. Have you progressed far enough in Christ that some people hate you? <laughs> if not, you've got a problem. Woe are you if all people speak well of you. If everyone thinks, oh, they're such a nice person. Is anybody here, still here? <laughs> Really, think about that. Like it, Paul says, if I was still trying to please men, I could not be a bondservant of Christ. Why do we do the things we do? Do we do it to please our parents? Do we, did we figure out early in life that if I do certain behaviors and get certain grades, I get a lot of attaboys? Or do we do it out of our love for God? Are we a people pleaser on our job, in our homes, in our... In, the, in our ministries. Woe is us if all men speak well of us. Well, with that idea, hopefully we understand that you can grow in grace or, you, or not. And you, if you're not growing in grace, if you're the same person you were yesterday, you've fallen short of what God has for you. You should be able to say specific ways in which Man, I'm not the same person I was a week ago. 
The grace of God is transforming me from glory to glory. Next week, we'll talk about attitudes and actions for appropriating greater grace. Let's get back as quick as we can since I'm seven minutes over the time.